Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Lady Scientist podcast. We are here today with fellow lady scientist, Blythe Sather. She's a senior director at Lyle Immunopharma, and she works on T-cell engineering, and I'm excited to share uh, some of what she does with us. So Blythe, if you could give us a bit of an introduction on yourself and what you do for your job. Sure. So yeah, like you said, Blythe Sather is, um, I'm a PhD. I got my PhD at the University of um, Washington back in 2007. Um, I, I study immunology, though most of my focus has been on cell engineering. So I kind of got into this um, through Seattle Children's, um, working on stem cell and T cell engineering, and then moved to Juno and then to Lyle. Um, where I've kind of run different programs to develop cell therapies for oncology and primary immunodeficiency disorders. And how did you first get interested in this field? What, what was kind of the, the beginnings? You know, I did my PhD on regulatory T cells. And so I remember back then thinking about regulatory T cells as a cell therapy, but it was still pretty far off the manufacturing idea of that. Um, and when I was looking to do a postdoc, I wanted, didn't want to leave Seattle, um, but I didn't want to work on the same thing. So there was a lab, David Rawlings's lab at Seattle Children's that worked on both B-cell signaling, which is something I was woefully inadequate um, at, and as well as gene therapy for primary immunodeficiency. So I felt like I could go there and have my choice of things I might, I should learn as well as things I may want to learn. And so I, that's kind of how I went that way. I think I was interested in David's lab because they, you know, when I grew up in the 70s and 80s, you know, the boy in the bubble syndrome was something that we heard about on television. Um, and they were working on therapies to correct that. So do actual gene correction, which was really amazing to me that you could go in and actually fix gene mutations to, to help these patients. And so that's kind of what drove me to go there. Most of my studies had been really in mouse models and the idea of actually helping a real person was really what drove me, so. Awesome. Yeah, I, in this uh, talk that I was giving yesterday, I asked the, the graduate students um, for them to map out the answer to two major questions for why they do what they do. And one of, one, I think there's this big picture question of um, why it is we do what we do. And mine's definitely in line with that of um, wanting to work on something that could impact a patient one day and, and potentially help them uh, with some, you know, debilitating disease. So um, can you, can you walk us through how your current role, like what, what is the end goal for you there? And, and is that still in line with your, you know, your purpose? Yeah. So my current role is, you know, the head of T-cell engineering is kind of an ambiguous title, but really what I do is I help take kind of our proof of concept projects and translate them into a clinical trial. And, and that's what, honestly, after being at Juno and going through that process a couple of times, I realized as much as I love early discovery, I kind of just want to get on with it and get into a patient and see if it's actually going to work. I'm not one to get lost in mouse modeling. And as much as I want to know the mechanism, I just want to see if it works. And then I'll go back and figure out the mechanism. If it doesn't work, you know, part of me is kind of like, let's move on to something that will work. Um, and so what I'm doing now is really taking proof of concept and narrowing the focus enough so everybody kind of sees the path to the FDA, to the IND, to the clinical trial, and to try to cut out the noise. And that's, I think, what I am good at. 
Um, and it, it really, in the end, it is what I'd set out to do is can I get these things that we're designing, which is cool and interesting, but like if it never goes anywhere but a paper, what's the point? As is kind of my mentality. Not that I don't, that I think, you know, general research is pointless. It's just for me, that's what drives me, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I again, was just speaking on this um, to these students because I think that the culture within biotech can be very different than academia. And part of that difference is exactly what you're talking about of needing to narrow your focus and really be efficient at you know, producing that product or that um, gene therapy that has the result you're looking for and moving that into the clinic because it's such a lengthy process, generally speaking. I would say the one thing I didn't appreciate when I was in academia is that you really want to be right in industry. It's not that you don't want to be right in academia, but when you start to feel, when that day comes, when you're dosing a patient, it is terrifying because oh. you're like, I hope everything we did prepared us and that this is correct. And we didn't do something wrong along the way. Cause like you're holding your breath for in like fear, you don't want to hurt anyone. And so Absolutely. like, I think people don't understand like how thorough people really are in industry. Oh, sure, yeah, you know, absolutely. You know? Yeah, I think, and I think what I observe is that the science is solid just in different ways, right? Mm -hmm. Like in the academic setting, it's more of this um, expansive, you know, question asking. Mm -hmm. And in, in, you know, a preclinical program, it's really more about, um, really solid data that demonstrates that this makes sense to put into a patient yeah. um and that you know that's a little bit different than than what you would do to write an academic paper um, yeah i feel like that's one place where a lot of university programs could work on is preparing people for that piece um because i don't think people understand a lot of people who are long time basic science academics, what that process is, how to think about kind of the safe, safety risks of a product, how to think about how the FDA is going to care about questions on safety and how a clinical trial is designed and all that sort of thing is just having an understanding of that as a scientist. I think it's you only, I've only learned on the job. Mm -hmm. So you talked about the, the, the terrifying moments of, of finally dosing your first patient with something that you worked on. Can you highlight any of the kind of joys or breakthroughs you had at Juno and, you know, what that felt like to just be a part of something from the beginning and then, you know, to have the success of moving into the clinic with it. Yeah, it's funny because I pushed so hard to make that product something more than it was. Like I wanted it to be almost a next gen style product. So, you know, typically a CAR T-cell product targets a protein and, and that's kind of, as they call it, a vanilla CAR therapy. Um, it's like a lingo. And then if you add something to it to enhance its activity or to change the way it traffics in the body or, or et cetera, it's kind of next generation. And I wanted so badly because I was like, come on, everybody's doing the standard BCMA CAR, let's do something, you know? And I remember, you know, one of my um, uh, co colleagues was really just like, you really want to see this go to the clinic? Um, Valerie Odegar was like, she was a, a mentor of mine. Um, also one of my bosses at Juno for a brief time. And she, and I remember, I was like, come on, we've got to do something more than this. She's like, you want to get this to the clinic. You really want to get there fast and you want to help patients. Just we'll do this first and we'll bring the next gen later. She was totally right. 
Um, but it was, it was hard to accept. Like, I felt like it wasn't what we could do, you know? And sometimes that was a, such a good lesson. Like, I know what we can do, but what should we do right now? And then what can we do next? And I think now people have shown that this, this process really is going to work. And so now people are adding onto it and all the next gen things are coming now that they know it's safe and it's effective. And so it did, it does make sense, but I would say, you know, one of the best moments, I'll never forget it. I was in San Diego for, I was giving a talk down there for a conference. I can't remember which one. And, um, I was running, um, like on Coronado Island and I got a call, I got a text. I'm just running along listening to Coldplay. I think it was the song fix you. I'll never forget. Cause it was that song. And I got a text and it said, first patient is in CR. The first wow. patient we treated was had a complete response. And it was like, I fell into the grass and started to cry. Wow. This was like, oh my God, like something we've done, something we did from the design phase from the very start, like is in a patient and has cured someone. That's somebody's grandfather or grandmother or mother or father. You know what I mean? It was just yeah. like, and for them from then on, I'm like, translate, like I want to be translating things for the rest of my career it was the best yeah. feeling ever. It was a beautiful, it was a beautiful thing, you know? And so it's just, yeah, but I know that it doesn't always go that way. So that's, yeah. you, get, you never know. But that's definitely like a dream result. And, and for people who are less familiar, um, typically with cancer patients who are being treated with these types of cellular therapies, the, the result that we all hope for is complete response um, to the treatment. And that means that they're in remission and they no longer you know, need to receive treatment. And if, you know, if the cancer resurfaces, that means that it's a partial response. Is that what we? Um, dep well, it depends on the cancer. Okay. How they... it, but typically these patients have been on multiple other treatments prior to receiving the cellular therapy as well. So oftentimes they've already gone through rounds of chemo. Is that correct? Yeah. And myeloma particular, a lot of times they've ten, been 10 years and 15 therapies. Like myeloma is a really slow burning cancer. And so a lot of these patients have been through it for over a decade by the time we saw them, because we were, especially with a lot of these early phase ones, you get the people, the patients who are kind of fourth, fifth line, you know, mm -hmm. what they call it. So like way down the line in their treatments, they don't have a lot of options. So especially patients like that, hard to treat patients when you have a CR like that. It's like, this was their last chance. So wow. it's pretty awesome. Yeah. That's the other reason I like working in the field that we're in is as hard as it is sometimes because we do get the hardest to treat patients when it actually works for them. This is all they have. You exactly. Know? So yeah. And that was what I was kind of getting to is that, you know, they've already gone through so many points of failure in their treatment. It's really kind of, um, you know, there might, they might not be living that much longer. And so to receive something that puts them into um, remission, I think is just, it's a total game changer, right? Um, that's what I was, God, why did that PD? When people are in PD, that's progressive disease. Ah, okay, right. I always forget all of those for some reason. I'm like less familiar with that side of things. Um, and yeah, I, I, only, no, I had a trial myself, like that I was really working on myself. I, and then I really was like every, every criteria, everything. Right. I was, you know what I mean? Yeah. I miss, that. I miss, I still, to this day, I'm always like, you know, as you say, peek over the fence, whenever I see data from, mm -hmm. you know, from that it come out and I know that Ash is coming and I'm going to be watching just to see. Yeah. Is that in December? First week of December. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I need to. I'm going to probably register for that one since. 
I can't yeah. imagine trying to go to Ash <laughs> virtually. It's hard enough in person. Oh I guess God, it would be easier to switch between because there's miles between conferences when you're actually at Ash. So oh, <laughs> exactly. Be- yeah, I don't know where it's set this year, but ASGCT, that was brutal where it was like East yeah. Coast time, getting up at 5 a.m. to watch the conferences. It was like, and then working, you know, because normally you're at a conference, you are going to the talks, you're not. Um, and then you're meeting people in between, right? So yeah, you're not like trying to do work, but during yeah. COVID, it was like, uh. I think that's but, what I'm most in COVID is I love conferences. I love I seeing know, people. At me conferences. too. I was really hopeful because I'm working in CNS again. Mm-hmm. I was really hopeful I'd be able to go back to see all my friends at this um, conference they have in Palm Springs every year. Nice. And they just announced that it's virtual. <laughs> no, <laughs> like, can we still go to Palm Springs? No. Um, but yeah, getting back to COVID, actually, I'm curious how how that has impacted you this year, like on a professional level. Because I know for myself, when it first started, you know, like you can't help but see it through the lens of being a scientist and wanting to help with this global pandemic. And I, you know, obviously our work on cancer is really important uh, work that we do, but um, I almost felt like maybe I needed to, you know, shift my perspective or see what else I could help out with. So I'm curious um, how it's impacted you and and your view of your work and, you know, your role as a leader and manager in, in a, you know, pharma company. Yeah, I mean, I think I felt the same thing in the beginning. Like, I felt like maybe I should be working on that and how can I contribute? And I actually reached out to some people like, what can I do? Can I volunteer? You know, it didn't seem like I really got any traction. Um, I think it was obviously really difficult managing a lot of people and trying to figure out how to run a lab when we couldn't even be there. And like, that was a lot of work just trying to figure out how to make that happen. In the end, you know, we wear so much PPE anyway, it actually wasn't too hard. And people were very conscientious of each other and wearing masks and doing all the things they need to do. So that was great. Um, I find myself um, reading, I, I listened to TWIV, which is This Week in Virology. It's awesome podcast to like call out in the podcast world. Like nice. I listen to that every week and they actually give clinical updates and they, you know, it's just, it's really informative and, mm-hmm. and non-political, which I do love. Um, so I listen to that and then I read a lot of the papers and then I, 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 try to be a voice for people when they ask. I try not to offer because you know you gotta be careful who you offer any kind of immunology information to these days. But when people ask, I, I try to give them an informed decision or pass along informed data. Say, or when people are misinformed, I say, okay, well, maybe you should just take a look at this or take a look at that or help them understand how the vaccine platforms are different and what to be, you know, what they don't need to worry about and what they do. And, you know, so I feel like as an immunologist, I can be a really helpful um, resource. I've um, reached out to my kids' school um, to help to offer my help uh, if they for coming back to school plans or any of that sort of thing into Highline School District um, if they need input from somebody like who's an immunologist. Um, so that kind of stuff, I feel like I can make an impact at least locally. Um, but when it comes down to it, you know what I, it's been everything I can just to keep people keep people's heads up <laughs> during all this it's tough when uh, different people handle it different ways so the people in the lab working with me on my team like 
yeah, everybody's kind of dealing with it in different ways. So that's been my job. I feel like lately has been just to keep people positive as much as I can to be like a realist about where we're at and just mm -hmm. try to be transparent. Absolutely. Yeah. You know? I, I agree. I think the, you know, the information dissemination has definitely been more of a role, you know, for us yeah. as scientists this year. So the positivity, I think there's just so much negativity out there and right. um, you have to, I, I think, you know, you have to be positive where you can and, and help people see the light. So along those lines, I want to get into the Pfizer vaccine results and, and get your opinion on them. And what are, what are your thoughts? Yeah. I mean, a 90% response rate is awesome. I'd love to see, I mean, I want to see the patient demographics, um, the, like the populations they looked at, how many in each group. I really want to see beyond the antibody response. I want to see T cell responses. I want to see all the science because that's the one thing I've been looking at in a lot of the other kind of initial results is, you know, who's showing T cell responses because B cell, even antibodies wane. You know, I have, I know people who've gotten their antibodies checked after they had COVID and then three months later, they don't have them anymore, you know? So, but that doesn't mean that you don't have immunity. It just, you know, that's something we don't understand. And so mm -hmm. I, I think the best thing they can do is to get inf as much information out to people so that people like us can help echo that information. Like, yes, mm -hmm. this is safe. Yes, this looks effective, you know, and help people. I've had a lot of people ask me like, oh, I'm not getting this vaccine. They rushed it through and it's, it's a brand new thing and trying to help people understand like how the platforms are different and how they're not. And, you know, I mean, it is, I think for some, some people it's, they have no idea what the difference between, you know, a heat killed and an RNA and an adenovirus yep. vaccine is, you know? And so just trying to help people understand, you know, you're probably going to get a fever and a sore arm, kind of like you do with your flu shot. Like yep. it's not be that different. And if you do, that's great. Like I tell my kids, oh, yeah. your arm is awesome. That means it's that doing means its it's working, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's yeah. what I've heard about it. And I know it's a two dose regimen. Um, mm. I also heard that the, the team that um, that designed it originally was working on an mRNA vaccine for the flu that would be able to hit multiple strains. And so they and were able to vaccine. Yep. Yeah, they were able to pivot quickly when COVID started and um, focus on a vaccine for COVID. Um, and maybe that's part of why, you know, they were able to get something going yeah. relatively quickly. Um, but I mean, but if I, that and the Moderna vaccine work, mRNA platforms have not been, uh, there's no like approved vaccine with an mRNA platform. That's huge. Like it's it a whole is. new, you know, a, a whole new platform, but it is a whole new platform. And so that's something exactly. that I think, you know, but yeah, from, and, I'm not worried as much as an adeno chimp virus, right? I mean, that, that, those have their, you know, whether they're small, there's still some side effects, so. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm, I'm really, I mean, I've always been excited about mRNA as a delivery strategy. And um, I think if, if this, if, if the data continues to um, show these kinds of numbers, I'm, I'm, I'm really encouraged by it. And um, I know it's a massive trial, they enrolled like 43,000 yep. participants. Yeah. Um, do you know how many people are in the Moderna trial? I heard, so I think it was 36,000, like I think, or at least 30,000. They're doing a lot too. They're all really big. 
Yeah. Um, I've tried to get in several times at the, the Me Hodge. Too. I can, I, I've filled out their form like four times. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I have as well. I, I, you know, I think living in Seattle and being close to a lot of this, um, biotech and, um, and a lot of the, the developments around it, I, I definitely wanted to be a participant in, in the, the early trials. Um, I knew, and I know people have different thoughts on that. Like you said, some people are like, I don't want them to put that in me. Um, but yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, I, don't know. I would take all of them probably at once. <laughs> <laughs> right? We could like go back to normal and just, you know. <laughs> well, I just wish they wouldn't have made them all to the spike protein. Cause if they had one to the spike and one to another piece, like, and then I'd get them all and then you're covered. <laughs> <laughs> I like that strategy. But they're all the same protein. So I don't, and maybe it would just boost you, but I don't think it'll yeah. be. Yeah. Yeah. Like completely yeah. immune. Yeah. But it'll be interesting if, if I think they're waiting for another 162 cases or something. Right. So they need to get, I mean, I guess then the, the silver lining to everything that's going on is they'll get their infections. Because, yeah. You know. Yeah. And I think that's a good point to make to people who are doubtful of why this happened so quickly is that the reality is we have an active infection going on in the population. And so you're able to survey and get this kind of data quickly. Yep. Uh, unlike some diseases or other types of vaccines where you might need a, you know, a fake version of the virus. Challenge trial like they're doing in the UK, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting. I'm going to talk to, I'm going to have Nate um, Lambert on the oh, podcast. Nice. Nice. Uh, to talk more about the Pfizer results when they come, when the new results come out. Because yeah. um, he has some good background in, in that. So can you talk a little bit about mentoring in your career and how you see yourself as a mentor? And, um, and I know you're involved in women in bio, so maybe you could chat about that as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, I think mentoring is, being a mentor and being mentored is like, been a huge impact has had a huge impact in my career you know I came into immunology because I you know came to Seattle and got a job originally with Joan Government who's the head of the immunology department now but she at the time she was not even tenured and I wanted to learn about immunology and I I pestered her endlessly to get this job I had no experience in her area at all and came back like daily <laughs> for like two or three weeks before she finally just relented and hired me. But she became an advocate for me, helped me get into grad school when I, you know, my grades from undergraduate weren't perfect. And she actually wrote letters for me to help me get in and, you know, has been a mentor of mine ever since. Um, so she, you know, was one of my first mentors in, you know, post-college, though I had a few before then, even my, my high school science teacher is probably why I got into research in the first place. Um, both male and female mentors along the way have helped me. I, I feel like I, I had, we had a great mentor program. Um, it was kind of a, grew out of organically at Juno out of kind of a women kind of supporting women. Um, and we kind of self-assigned mentors. And I had a, a, an awesome mentor, Liz Smith, who was actually our head of regulatory, which was great because she wasn't anywhere near what I was doing in early discovery. But yet I got to get her, you know, her, her uh, input 
along the way in the, in the program. And then she would see me in a lot of these big leadership meetings because I was the research lead and she would give me feedback afterwards. You should have handled this this way. You could have done this. When this person comes at you this way, this is how you handle them. So she was awesome. Um, and then I've tried to mentor others along the way. And I, that's one of the reasons I got involved in Women in Bio is I really wanted to kind of be that person, you know, get mentorship and give mentorship. Um, I feel like as I started to realize what an impact mentorship has had on my career, I realized, you know, there's people coming some, a lot of people, and I think that it's better than it was, but coming out of grad school or undergraduate kind of like not really knowing and having, knowing people to help them navigate how to get into biotech, if that's how they want to get there. How to, you know, I've can't tell you how many people's resumes I've reviewed that I don't know them at all, but they've just, I've met them at a women in bio event and they've sent me their resume and I've done a, you know, once over for it and be like, you need to remove this, you need this, there's too much of that, you know, just that kind of thing is, is huge for people. Um, and you don't realize it when you're doing it and like the mentor shoes, then like you see that person and you see them go on and get a job and be successful. And you're like, that's awesome. You know, cause you actually have helped somebody along the way. So I, I don't, you know, I, I don't think enough people realize how important it is to kind of get your own, like, I think who, somebody, I can't remember who it was along the way, introduced me to the concept of your personal board of directors, where you get different people. I have like a group of people that I consider my kind of personal board of directors that are groups of mentors that have like very different, you know, they're very different um, uh, kind of specialties, like Akira is a great example. Mm -hmm. I try to meet with him regularly. I just like the way he thinks about businesses and about biotech. You know, my old CSO, hi, Levitsky, love the guy, meet with him as regularly as I can. Not as much now, obviously, but he is such a great scientific mentor. And I also feel like I can speak really frankly with him about kind of where I'm going and what I want. And he knows I would love to be a CSO and like he helps me point me to the right places. And, you know, I, and I could go on. I have, you know, a whole series of people that I kind of keep in touch with and I and I meet with and we talk just about career and where the field is going and you know challenges and yeah it's just it's I think it's super important to do that for yourself um, and if I could tell anybody coming out of grad school just do the, the it's so important to collect those people and keep those relationships and it, it will help you immensely in ways you can't even begin to understand <laughs> until like way later you look back and say gosh when was it I met you? Geez, you've helped me here, 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 and here in my career, <laughs> you know? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I, I would say I've had a similar experience with Fyodor Arnav and, you know, him kind of popping up again and again throughout my career and helping me along the way. And I think it's so valuable. And I think when, when people go out of their way to um, promote you and, and be an agent for you and your work, um, it definitely makes you want to pay it forward for others and, and help them out and put them in rooms and in conversations that they might not have been in otherwise and um, help them find, you know, that job they've been looking for. So I think that's a great attitude to have. And it's awesome that you you do so much of that um, for others. If you'd like to um, reflect just on what it's been like for you working in more of a male dominated, dominated space. I, I know when we were at Lyle, we had a lot of women that we worked with and who were above us, um, Margot, CSO, Liz. So it was a little bit different there, but I've definitely been in the position of being the only woman in the lab. Um, so if, if you feel like chatting about it um, 
and just commenting on how that's been for you. Yeah, I, it's interesting because, you know, like Lyle is not, I don't feel my gender as acutely as I have in previous positions. Um, I, I, it shouldn't matter. And I, it's funny you say uh, only women in the lab. I rarely am the only woman in the lab. Now, when it comes to the boardroom or at the table where decisions are being made, that happens a lot. And that, ha not at Lyle necessarily, but I think that in a lot of places, the women, there's the lab is filled with women but the decision makers aren't in the lab. <laughs> and I think that is, it's so, and I, I've made a, a real point to try to make sure that the people who are running things in the lab and running the projects get the seat at the table because they're the ones who should be there, whether they're male or female. Um, but, you know, it, it always made me a little crazy when like there were always men kind of making decisions and, and giving the presentation yet they don't actually aren't very close to science. And, and I, I think that that's inefficient, first of all, and unfair when somebody who's, who's built a project doesn't get to learn, either learn how to present it or present it, right? It's like, you know, if you don't give a person a chance to be at the table, they're never gonna learn how to be at the table, right? So people, I, I've heard many times over my career about whether I'm ready. And I rarely hear anybody tell a guy they don't think he's ready. And that makes me, when I hear that, that's like, you know, when you get triggered by certain things, when people talk about someone, not even if it's not me, a woman being ready for something, it makes me, makes me, you'll see me turn colors <laughs> because nobody's place to tell somebody else when they're ready for something. And I feel like women get told when they're ready to be at the table, they're ready to present a presentation. They're ready to be the lead of something a lot more than men. And I, so I, I try to put a kibosh on that crap as much as I can. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, because I feel like until I actually was there in front of a big, you know, a leadership committee or uh, get, getting a project past the stage gate or talking to the FDA or, and none of us are ready. <laughs> like, and to pretend that men are more ready than women for that kind of stuff is ridiculous. Um, and I think, you know, the one nice thing is a lot of women have, been, been told to wait for so long that they're more than ready and they usually shine brightly when they're given the chance. Right. So, um, yeah. So, I mean, and when it comes to, you know, for the most part, I, I would say I had some amazing, you know, male mentors and, and colleagues. And, and I've also had some ones that were not so great. Um, and they were, you know, I don't think they had had a whole lot to them whole, had a whole lot to do with them being male more than them just being jerks, but, um, sure. you know, I've definitely had my share of people that it's been challenging to learn how to work with them. Again, learning experience. There's always going to be people like that. Um, but it was tough because coming from Seattle Children's where I, you know, my boss, David and, and Andy Scherenberg, they were amazing. They promoted all the men and women in their labs equally. Never felt, you know, any, any kind of question about that. And then, you know, moving on to, to academia or to industry, it was, it was different. Um, and there were situations where I felt like it was, at least in my view, it felt like the women were not getting as, as many opportunities as the men at first. Um, and, but it, it, I think that the uh, things were done to try to change that, which was good, but it was, it was frustrating to kind of, to actually be like, oh my God, this has to do with me being a woman. Holy crap. Like that realization had never happened before. Mm -hmm. And it and um, a bit at first in industry. And then, you know, and you, you work your way through it and you learn from it. 
Absolutely. Um, I mean, when I was at Juno, we had this awesome women's kind of women's group where we got together monthly and we talked about it was it, was, it started as a kind of management training, but then it became this mentoring group. Um, and we really and then there were times when it was just more of a counseling session for each other about situations we've been in. And it was great because we were all like really supporting each other um, in situations that were frustrating us. And I think it made us all better because of it. So just kind of have to find your way through sometimes. Absolutely. Yeah. And I like that point about um, being ready. I, I, I've definitely heard that from time to time in my own career. And I think it, it is an interesting um, kind of subtle difference, right? That I think over time in our careers, we're experiencing all of these very subtle differences in how we treat each other, how we view each other, you know, mm -hmm. no matter what the reason, you know, it could be, you know, being a woman or it could be looking different um, or it could be your, you know, approach to things. Um, and I think there's, there's managers or, or bosses who have this ability to um, entrust people to see what they're capable of and yeah. give them the runway to go with something. And I think those are the instances where people really grow and get better at what they're doing. I mean, within science, it could be, you know, a big experiment. Um, that you know maybe they're not quite ready to do, but once they get that experiment done, having the confidence to iterate on that and 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 grow as a scientist, I think those are the kinds of situations that like as a as a mentor or PI, you're it's I think beneficial to try to entrust people with things like that. Oh, and it's so hard. I think that was the hardest thing to learn when I was at Juno, and I came out of children's where most of the people I was managing were very junior. They need a little more hands-on um, kind of input, micromanaging as it would be called. Um, and I got people that I was managing who had been in industry for a lot longer than I had. And I overly managed them and they left. And it was a serious blow, like to be like, wow, these people are quitting. And when they quit, they were very candid about why. And I, and I appreciate that so much because I would not be, I mean, I don't think I'm the perfect manager, but I think I'm a better manager than I certainly was. And it, a lot of that I attribute to them telling me like, dude, you could have just backed off. You were constantly all over us and telling us how to do things. And we, you know, we didn't feel like you were treating us like professionals that we are. And I was like, wow. Okay. Wow. But like it took, you know, someone saying that and I was like, all right. And so then I, you know, learned how to back up. I learned how to offer help when People seemed like they needed it. If they didn't want it, I backed off and then kind of helped them pick up the mess if there was a mess afterwards. But like letting go is a huge thing that I think they don't teach you in academia, letting go of the work, the physical work and teaching people how to do it and work with them to kind of develop a project so that you're not in their business all the time, you know, and mm -hmm. empowering them to, to run it. And then, then you're just there to support them. And that's, that's my job now really is just to kind of help Make sure everybody has what they need to be successful mm -hmm. you know? and then be there to look at data and get excited. And when things go completely left turn from what we thought, be like, well, that's so cool. Like <laughs> we were totally wrong. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> you Absolutely. know? Yeah, yeah. I think it's, it's so 
hard sometimes to accept when you're, you know, going about it the wrong way and, mm -hmm. and learning how to manage people and learning how to manage scientific programs from a distance, yeah. you know? So but what a, what a valuable learning experience for you in your career. And I think, I mean, from what I observed from working together, you always seem, it, it always seemed like you were such a resource to your team and someone that um, they could come to with problems. And, um, you know, I just, always admired how you ran your team um, at Lyle. So, yeah. yeah. I feel like it's really important when you're learning to be a manager is to watch how other people manage. And I think that was one cool thing about Juno. It was such a big place. And I saw all these different types of teams and mm -hmm. like how different people ran their teams. And being a the scientific lead on the BCMA car project, I got to sit in on the CMC and the regulatory team and all the other teams meetings and see how they ran their meetings. Mm -hmm. And it was really useful because I picked up little things along the way on how to run a successful meeting, how to run a successful team, you know, how to, what, and over the years, there's certain things that I, that I do to manage that people seem to really like, you know, that I've, that other people don't do. Like I've had people manage people I used to manage. And they're like, God, you just set the bar so high with your all your notes you send people and you do this. Like, what, what are you what are you doing to me? <laughs> I was like, well, I'm you know, for me it's communication, especially the more people I get to manage, I, I can't remember Absolutely. everything I've talked about. <laughs> so I don't write it down, you know, and it helps me organize so that people feel like they're being heard and you know, I'm following up on what they need. And but yeah, it's it's it gets hard. I look at people who have these humongous teams, you know, hundreds of people. It's like, how do you even know what's going on? Yeah. So at like a big company. So yeah. So you mentioned wanting to be a CSO one day. And I know we've briefly talked about that a long time ago, but mm -hmm. I'm curious uh what like would what that look, path looks like for you. Are you do you feel like you're still kind of in the what I call like the incubator phase of I'm in this environment at this level and I'm learning and I'm gathering information and I'm kind of collecting data on what that would take. And then at some point in time, you know, you'll find that role that, that you've been looking for, or are you, are you interested in starting your own company one day? Would that be in the cellular therapy space or something else? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I would like, I've been actively trying to get mentorship around business development, around finance, around strat business strategy and biotech, because I feel like that's just, I mean, I've got some exposure to that, but that's, if I want to be a good CSO, you know, I, I, I want to learn that. Um, I feel like scientific strategy from a CSO's perspective, I've seen that from a lot of different angles. I get that, you know, not that I'm perfect at it either, but like I, I get what is needed for that. And I kind of see how you could do that well um, and how you, inter you know, so getting that interface time with the business side of things, getting that external um, interface, like with collaborations, I've gotten a lot of that both here and at Juno. So I feel like, you know, and running teams in different places and, you know, all those sort of things. That was one of the things that appealed to me about Lyle was coming in early, learning how to develop strategy, working with teams in different sites, really kind of, and the, all the different things that we're working on. So, you know, but I, it would take the right opportunity. You know, when you say, would I open, would I start my own company? Hmm, I certainly, I don't think I'd want to be CEO. Um, I just don't know if I know, have enough business uh, experience for that. Maybe, 
Um, but I, I would have to have the right idea. Mm-hmm. I, I, I've thought about it. Um, and I've talked, I have friends who would do venture capital work. Who's like, if you had a guy, I'd help you back you if you could, if you wanted to start a company, it's like, yeah, I, it's, it's hard to start from scratch mm-hmm. and you have to have something you really believe in. Yes. Yeah. You have to be able to sell it, you know, mm-hmm. to investors. And so maybe if the right thing came along, um, yeah, yeah. uh, but I, I like, I like being in big companies and I like being in small companies. So I don't know. It's, it's hard because opportunities come and go and yeah. you just have to kind of, I, yeah, I've yet to have the right thing come along and say, I'd be like, oh yeah, like, I mm-hmm. like really want this. I really want to be like, lead this. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I know it's, it's an interesting kind of world, the kind of the startup ideas in the startup world. Like it, it's a, it's a tough thing. Cause you know, you do stay in that or do you go to a big company and like where all the infrastructure is in place and it's a lot slower, but you might actually be able to translate something quickly. You know, I, the thing I worry about with the, the small company and selling it and then just, I've watched so many companies get bought up and then just dismantled and the idea goes nowhere. Mm-hmm. And it's, that makes me sad, you know, like good ideas, good groups who had great technology get swallowed up and just kind of picked apart. And then you realize like maybe they were bought to just make, to put them on the shelf so nobody else would get them, you know, and that's just really sad. Yeah. I think that's the strategy in a lot of, in, in a lot of cases is big company will swallow up company technology A so that technology B won't get it, you know, or company B won't get it, you know? Yeah. I think there's a lot of that going on now, especially with some of these companies that have so much funding that it's relatively easy for them to grab these smaller companies and you know I think it's a shame that so much of the exciting technology like you said might be sitting on a shelf and never go anywhere even at even at a company like Sangamo for instance you know there were programs that like were part of some kind of merger or deal and then that company, you know, gets that technology and they just never do anything with it. Yeah. Yeah. We had a couple things that we acquired at Juno that I remember just wishing like, oh, they, they're just, you know, I, I don't know what's become of it now that it's part of Celgene and then BMS, right? It's like, well, it, it's just lost in the shuffle almost, right? Mm-hmm. Which is just sad. Um, and so that's my fear is to get super invested in something, you know, my husband's like, well, you make a lot of money. Well, great. You know, I'm, I, I'm fine. Like, I don't, not looking to be a gazillionaire. I, I want to do something and build something that actually is going to be impactful. Right. Exactly. So yeah. my money's great and all, but like, to me, that doesn't drive me necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, it's more about like, I want to work on something that's going to like change the paradigm. Yeah. That, you know. Yeah. And the piece that I'm still, you know, I've worked on a lot of, you know, preclinical technologies that I think could be game changing, right? Um, Something I worked on at Altius, for example, um, that, you know, would be this CAR T enhancer, like you talked about. there was also a program at Sangamo that I worked on that it was at the time um, a treatment for Huntington's disease 
-hmm. that we really felt like could be curative and is now sitting on a shelf at Takeda. Um, Mm -hmm. So like what I'd love to figure out is how, you know, how I could take something really valuable like that and get it into the clinic and, and see it through yeah. You know, convince them to invest in it enough to get it there. Right. Cause yeah. Or, I mean, I don't know how often this model is happening, but with some of these companies, you know, are they interested in licensing or partnering to move things forward that otherwise they have not prioritized? That's like they another infrastructure. A lot of times they buy these technologies and they don't have the infrastructure to actually do anything with it. Clinically. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because if it's a gene therapy or cell therapy, you know, the manufacturing costs alone of some of these programs is so exorbitant that, you know, they're going to have to pick and choose what what they're actually going to test in the clinic, right? Yeah, I know. I feel like I want to develop a a CRO that does non-viral delivery so you can quickly translate things without Mm -hmm. virus or any of that. And and just be the person that, you know, you wanted me to make your cells without virus. I'm, you know, I'm your girl. Yeah. Yeah, no, <laughs> I, what gene would you like it in? I'll put it right there. <laughs> I've been talking, the Nates and I have been talking about, you know, manufacturing and, um, and speeding up some of these things, or at least having resources for, for people in, you know, Seattle, for instance, to be, I know. To- I remember talking to Akira about that a while back. Yeah. You know? I know is interested in that as well. Yeah, but it's, yeah, it's harder. It's easy to say. I remember talking to another old colleague of mine who was talking about being like a viral vector kind of go-to guy, but then it was just, he couldn't get people to invest in it, you know? (laughs) And I was like, maybe because it's virus and people are going to get away from virus. He was just like, bah, (laughs) get away from me. like it's gonna happen people are gonna people are gonna want to know where their genes are going so eventually when we get this nut cracked we're gonna figure that out so yeah absolutely I know it's getting past six now and you have dinner with your family so maybe we can we can wrap up and okay um, just wanted to thank you for taking the time to to chat with us for the podcast and I think this episode will be really fun for our listeners to hear Um, yeah anytime yeah. I always enjoy kind of just, I don't know, talking about science is always great, but I, you know, I think that people also like to hear how people got where they're at. You know, it's, I, I, I get it a lot from people that they don't realize that I'm almost 50 years old and like, I've been kind of around the block a little. And so I, I'm always willing to share, you know, a lot of my coworkers even are like, Oh, you're so young. You shouldn't be a CSO. It's like, you know, what? <laughs> Not that young. <laughs> and I should be. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, you'll like talking to Christina because yeah. she's like 37 and she started three biotech companies and yeah, you right? know, it's like she, cause when I was first thinking about joining tune, it was before I was laid off from a while. Yeah. <laughs> and I said, you know, like I, did a short postdoc and then I got the senior scientist position and I've only been here a year and change. Like, I don't know, I don't want to jump ship, you know? Um, And she just made me feel like better about 
like my career and you know having a short postdoc and doing a short PhD and all of that yeah. it was just like you know you never know like sometimes life lets you jump ahead and that's okay um oh absolutely I feel like there's far too many people being told that they need to wait till I have they have some x paper or they need to wait till they have this or that and when opportunity knocks you got to answer I mean that was what happened with Juno I was waiting to, you know, write grants to get my own lab started at Children's. And it was like this opportunity, you know, my boss at the time wouldn't speak to me for like a week. He's like, what do you, how, I, you're, I'm like, he's like, you can't go. I'm like, what am I going to stay here and be your postdoc forever? Like it's been six years. Like, you know, I, I need to get on. And I wasn't a postdoc anymore. I was a staff scientist, but same right. difference. You know, it was the same job. Yeah. And sometimes you just need to just go yeah. leap. You know, it was jump. the same when I went to Lyle, right? It was like, am I really going to leave and go sit in like a corridor on a beanbag chair? Okay. Like I remember a couple of times being like, oh crap. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> when we had no lab and um, yeah. I miss my beanbags. <laughs> I know. Well, your beanbags are going to be at my house soon because they, oh, nice. they want them out of there. They're like piled up in a conference room right now. I'm like, oh, I'm I sure. Yeah. I just want <laughs> <laughs> yeah you should take them I, I try to convince Brian to take them to his uh you know his cabin or whatever but um yeah so is there any last bits of advice you want to share with uh you know budding young scientists don't let anybody but yourself tell you when you're ready <laughs> <laughs> I love that <laughs> Yeah. Uh, no one is that. No one is that. Everybody's always ready and no one is ever ready for, you know, it's like when you're becoming a parent, mm -hmm. we're like, well, you got to wait for this. You gotta wait. You're never ready. It's like, yeah, you're never ready. You're never ready. Exactly. So 